Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people. I'm your host, Emma Fabriget. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 1 of our in-depth series of the intersection of faith and politics. Israel is a divided society which desires and struggles for but has not succeeded in integrating fully. Today, I'm joined by Ronald Zweig to discuss the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Thanks for joining us today, Ronald. In my opinion, you've played a huge role in the academic world, researching Jewish-Israeli history and exploring the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But for those who don't know you, could you please give us an overview of the work you do? Uh, Okay, fine. Uh, I'm uh, Ron Zweig, the Professor of Israel Studies at New York University. I've uh, been at New York for the last 17 years. Prior to that, I was in the uh, Department of uh, Israel, Israeli and Jewish History at Tel Aviv University. Um, I'm originally Australian, hence my accent, but I've spent most of my life in Israel. I've written on the British mandate, I've written on German reparations and the Jewish world, uh, and I am currently studying Israeli policy in the 1960s and 70s, in particular as it pertained to um, the Palestinian refugee question. Amazing. So let's dive straight into it. Let's start from the beginning of the establishment of Israel, why it came to be, and how it set foot for the future of what it is today. Um, that, that's a huge question, and I can probably answer it briefly in about 50 hours. Uh, <laughs> but I, I will just say that um, Israel was created um, as a result of a United Nations decision to divide British mandatory Palestine between Arabs and Jews. That decision was made in November 1947. Um, Why divide Palestine between Arabs and Jews? Uh, Because uh, Jews who have always looked to uh, the land west of the River Jordan, We can call that Palestine, we can call that the land of Israel, the biblical land of Israel. Jews have always looked to that land as their their heritage, their roots. Jewish history was forged there, the Jewish people uh, emerged there. And for the last uh, 2,000 years, although Jews have been dispersed from the land of Israel, Jews have always maintained emotional and sometimes actual practical physical links uh, with the land. Um, At various times uh, in modern history, that is since the 16th century, uh, there have been small waves of Jewish return to the land. Um, And from the 19th century, um, with the growth of political nationalism in Europe, Small groups of Jews looked to the land of Israel as a place for a future Jewish national home. The British government adopted the policy of supporting a Jewish national home during the First World War, 
And as a result of that, they acquired uh, an international mandate to govern Palestine, at least temporarily. That mandate came from the then League of Nations, created immediately after the First World War. And under the British mandate, the Jewish population of Palestine grew from approximately 60,000 until uh, 30 years later in 1948, the Jewish population grew to some 650,000, a tenfold increase. So why was it necessary to divide Palestine? The obvious reason, and the reason that everybody here, I'm sure, knows, is that uh, Jews and Arabs uh, began increasingly to uh, fight over the future, uh, the political future of the British mandate. And the situation became untenable uh, after the Second World War when the British decided it simply wasn't worth their while to govern a country where the two largest communities were in conflict, so they returned it to the United Nations. Now, that's how we got to the decision to partition Palestine. But the plan to partition Palestine didn't lead to peace like many had hoped. Why was that? So the first thing is to consider is that there was a significant population explosion in Palestine in the first half of the 20th century. The Arab population grew from 700,000 to 1.4 million by 1947-48, and the Jewish population grew from 60,000 to over uh, 600,000. That's the first cause of conflict. Another way of looking at the Arab-Israeli conflict is to realize that the history of Israel can be written in terms of four refugee movements. The first was the movement of Jews from Europe in the 1930s. And this was the, as a result of um, the rise of fascism in Europe, the second a refugee movement was the movement of Palestinians from Israel during the 1948-49 fighting in Israel's War of Independence, when over half of the Palestinians in the mandatory territory and 90% of the Palestinians who lived within what became the borders of Israel uh, either fled in the early phases of the war or were expelled in the later phases of the war, creating a Palestinian refugee problem uh, of uh, almost three quarters of a million people. The third refugee movement that has made up the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict was the movement of Jews from the Arab world as a result of the creation of Israel but not only as a result of the creation of Israel, also as a result of the growth of nationalism uh, in the Arab world and of decolonization in North Africa, the position of Jews uh, in the Arab countries became untenable and there was a large influx of Jews from the Islamic world, from uh, North Africa, from Iraq, uh, from Turkey, from Persia, uh, to Israel. And the final uh, refugee movement is that of Holocaust survivors and refugees 
who found it impossible to live in Europe after the Holocaust. And uh, they came um, in the early years of the state. These population movements were the root causes of the conflict as we know it today. And so when it comes to speaking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, most people tend to believe that the conflict is founded on just religious grounds. But can you explain if this is the case or not? Uh, It certainly was not a religious conflict uh, at the beginning. But in the course of time, it increasingly became a religious conflict after the um, Mufti of Jerusalem, the leader of Jerusalem's uh, Muslim community, became the most dominant figure in Palestinian Arab politics. By the 1930s, the anti-Zionism of Palestinian Arabs became increasingly a religious base, whereas the Christian element of Palestinian society is progressively weakened, as it was throughout the Middle East, with the rise of Arab Uh, Muslim nationalism, Christian communities throughout the Middle East uh, begin to migrate uh, and become less prominent. When it comes to looking at Judaism and Islam, what is the thing in common that they have regarding the land of Israel? The land of Israel does not play any significant religious part in uh, Islam. Um, In fact, uh, Jerusalem and the land of Israel uh, is not mentioned at all in in the Quran. However, uh, it is a firm uh, Islamic belief that once land becomes part of the Islamic world, it cannot be sacrificed. You cannot have political compromises that um, give up control over land that is now part of the Islamic world. So in that sense, the Jewish control over the land of Israel is an affront uh, to Islamic beliefs, but not to the foundational beliefs of Islam. But there are a couple of other interesting aspects of the the impact of religion on the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, And there are two separate developments recently, which I think we should look at. The first significant development, I think, is the split in the Islamic world between Sunni and Shia, which incidentally is also a split between uh, Arab Muslims and non-Arab Muslims. Um, This has divided uh, the Islamic world and has created um, openings for reconciliation with Israel uh, as the Sunni world looks for allies in order to contain the Shia world and in particular to contain Iran. Yet another development is the introduction of messianism into Israeli politics. Jewish control of the whole of the biblical land of Israel after 1967 awakened a Jewish religious nationalism that hadn't been significant uh, previously. And that uh, nationalism, that religious-based nationalism, has actually transformed Israeli politics uh, in recent years. Throughout history, we've seen 
the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, come, you know, to have quite some power and now has died off. Now we see the political group of Hamas. Could you explain how the PLO differs from the leading political group of Hamas? Well, the PLO is in fact a, a, an umbrella organization uh, that represents many different political Palestinian political groupings. It's a non-religious organization, so it includes uh, Islamists as well as anti-religious uh, Marxist uh, groupings. Now, what is significant about the PLO, which emerges in 1964 uh, out of the uh, early armed Palestinian struggle against Israel and becomes significant uh, in the 1960s um, and becomes internationally prominent in the 1970s with the, um, the use of international terror, um, hijackings, uh, plane bombings and so on. The PLO shifts its policies and in 1988 accepts the idea of a political solution based on a two-state solution. Previously, uh, the objective of the PLO was to um, replace the state of Israel, was to destroy Israel and reoccupy all of the historical Palestine. But in 1988, the PLO conceded that that was uh, not a realistic uh, objective, and it uh, committed to accepting a negotiated two-state solution. That shift, a dramatic and important historical shift in its policy, led eventually, five years later, to the negotiations in Oslo and to the acceptance of the Oslo Accords, which contained within them a mutual recognition where the PLO recognized Israel and Israel recognizes the PLO as a spokesman of the Palestinians. The Hamas is a much narrower-based organization. It is a religious Islamic organization that aims to control all of the territory uh, of uh, historic Palestine and to replace the state of Israel. Um, it clings to the uh, Islamic principle that uh, Islamic land, uh, land that once belonged to Islam should always belong to Islam, and there is no role for any re other religious groupings there except as uh, uh, minority religions, uh, what they call dhimmi status, that is second-class protected status. Um, so they're two fundamentally different organizations. Today, Hamas controls Gaza, whereas the PLO is the dominant political force uh, in the West Bank and behind the uh, Palestinian Authority. There have been various attempts over the last 10 years to reconcile the PLO and the Hamas, uh, but that uh, they have never succeeded. We'll be right back. Do you love global questions? Then you'd be happy to know that we run events all through the year. Find us on your socials. Search Young Diplomat Society to keep up to date with upcoming events. How does the Israeli government perceive Hamas? How does Israel see Hamas? Uh, Hamas uh, took over 
the Gaza Strip uh, very violently a year and a half after Israel uh, withdrew its settlements. When I say violently, they overthrew uh, the Palestinian uh, PLO um, authorities there um, in, in what was a very bloody struggle between Hamas and the PLO. Uh, and uh, establish a, a Hamas, well, effectively a Hamas dictatorship um, there. Now, Israel has had to deal with Hamas. Um, there have been uh, a number of military conflicts, three military incursions uh, into the Gaza Strip. Uh, and Israel's response to the um, Hamas's seizure of power uh, in the Gaza Strip uh, was to place a blockade around Hamas. That was done um, in the hope of bringing Hamas to its knees, but uh, more concretely, to avoid the import of uh, weapons into the Gaza Strip that would be used against Israel. Um, and that policy of a blockade um, which Israel imposed in conjunction with Egypt. It's not just an Israeli blockade, it's also an Egyptian blockade of the Gaza Strip, um, has remained in place uh, and has been the cause of constant uh, tensions with Hamas. I believe there are um, frequent and including current uh, contacts with Hamas to try and reach some sort of understanding to def defuse uh, the tensions along the border and to allow Israel to open up the border um, to Gaza um, in the hope of reaching some sort of settlement. The major problem that Israel faces is that any settlement with Hamas in Gaza will come at the expense of the standing of the PLO in the Palestinian population. It is Israel's objective to create a long-term peace deal with the PLO uh, rather than with the more radical uh, Islamic uh, Hamas. So does the PLO completely reject Hamas as an authority for Palestinian people? Well, it's, it's um, offered to negotiate uh, power um, sharing uh, with Hamas, but these negotiations have regularly failed. The Palestinians announce unity governments um, almost at regular intervals, but they come to nothing because um, both Hamas and the PLO uh, consider that they are in a life and death struggle for control of not just Gaza, but also uh, the West Bank. So I do not believe that this generation of political leaders will ever be able to reconcile uh, Hamas and the PLO. It is possible that like many conflicts in history, another generation will consider the, the divisions uh, irrelevant and uh, we'll be able to achieve some sort of uh, agreement. While we're talking about disagreements, we've seen on the other side of the spectrum agreements happening not long ago between Israel and the UAE and also Bahrain. So I wanted to see what do you think about these recent agreements and how it affects the ongoing idea of a possible two-state solution? 
Well, I can say that the agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, was simply a matter of coming out of the closet of discrete diplomatic and economic and military ties that have been developing for uh, the better part of 13, 14 years. I myself was in uh, Abu Dhabi in 2007 um, as part of an academic delegation from NYU. I was there as the professor of Israel studies. I was welcomed. I was treated extremely well by very high level officials. And I was told that there are, in fact, many Israelis, not just businessmen and not just tourists, but also security officials discreetly, quietly, already in Abu Dhabi, working with the Abu Dhabi government. So the development of open, peaceful relations, full diplomatic recognition, um, was an inevitable development. And one may ask uh, why this was possible. And the reason uh, is, as I referred to earlier, with the division between Sunni and Shia. So the Arab Emirates uh, hope to gain benefits, military security benefits from open relations with Israel, but also much more than that. There is huge potential for Israeli technology, water technology in particular, uh, and energy technologies uh, to benefit uh, the Gulf states, uh, which these states recognize. Uh, possibilities of trade and tourism are immense and they are developing very quickly. I can say that it's, the Israel's uh, relations um, have been established not only with the United Arab Emirates, but also with Bahrain and now uh, with Sudan, uh, which is a significant breakthrough. And I understand that there will be more agreements uh, in, in the near future. So while we see developments with more um, Arab nations with Israel. Some have been on the other spectrum saying that although there's been closer cooperation, they've questioned what this has meant for Palestinian Authority and the future of a two-state solution. Should this be a practical concern? I think the issue of the political future of the occupied territories is, is much larger than the issue of Israel's diplomatic relations with the Emirates. Israel has a much larger problem determining the future of its relations with the Palestinians uh, in the West Bank and in Gaza, uh, and will have to resolve that problem regardless of the stand of the Arab Emirates. Now, more immediately, the reason I assume you ask this question is because of the discussion uh, over the various initiatives to annex parts of the West Bank, which were technically uh, frozen because of the requirements or the demands of the uh, Arab Emirates. Well, there's something of a bluff there, uh, because although some parts of the Israeli political system are demanding annexation of parts of the West Bank, those parts of Area C, as it is called, the parts where most of the Jewish settlements are and the, there's the least Arab population, uh, in fact, the Israeli government has never been keen on annexing it. 
And although the prime minister's rhetoric is uh, on, on annexation, pro-annexation, the reality is that there were no practical preparations being made for annexation when the uh, agreement with the UAE came out and as it were, the UAE demanded that there be no annexation. In other words, there would not have been an annexation even without the UAE. Finally, how do you see the future of Israel in regards to its relationship with its neighbouring countries? Well, Israel has um, two categories of problems. One is its external problems with the Palestinians, uh, the future of the occupied territories, the future of the two-state solution, and the other are domestic problems. Israel is a divided society which desires and struggles for, but has not succeeded in integrating fully the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community and the Israeli-Palestinian community, that is Israeli Arabs who have Israeli citizenship and have been, remained in Israel since 1948. Turning first to the domestic problems, the Arab community uh, in Israel is now 21% of the population. The ultra-Orthodox community will very soon be, very soon be 20 to 25% of the population. Um, Israel has to work out how to completely integrate socially, economically, and politically these two diverse minority communities that sustain separate lifestyles within Israel. Israel has had some success uh, in, in doing this in recent years, uh, but it remains a very large problem, both the ultra-Orthodox aspect and the Israeli-Arab aspect of the problem. Looking to the problem of the Palestinians, Israel is committed to the two-state solution, although some political groupings in Israel um, are strongly opposed to a uh, Palestinian entity. But there is a reality on the ground, and that reality on the ground is, if not formal annexation, a very practical annexation uh, of the territories. And it has been argued, both by right-wing circles who want Israel to annex all of the West Bank, and by a growing uh, group of uh, left and liberal intellectuals who says that Israel effectively controls these territories and has done so for the last half century, for 50 years already or more. And Israel should acknowledge publicly that it has in practice annex these territories and the struggle now should be to give equal and full rights to the Palestinian Arab residents of the territories. So I think the debate over a two-state solution uh, is changing and um, if left and right realize that they are moving towards the same sort of uh, solution, a one-state solution, then uh, perhaps new political options will become possible. But this would happen at a price. Israel would no longer be a majority Jewish state, but Israel would become a binational state. The only way of avoiding this development is for Israel to 
uh, not just formally endorse the two-state solution, but to actively advance the two-state solution and to commit itself to the creation of a Palestinian political entity. Whether or not that is possible depends not only on major developments within Israeli politics, uh, but also within Palestinian politics. So thank you so much for this discussion. I feel like I've definitely learned a lot and people will be able to learn a lot as well. And now if somebody did want to reach out to you or read some of your work, what's the best way to reach you or the work you've done? Well, if they're interested in the background to the problem, they should read my uh, Britain and Palestine during the Second World War, which looks at British policy towards the end of the mandate. They uh, can read various articles I have written on the history of the mandate. My books on German reparations and the Jewish world are uh, out there. You can Google my name. And if they want to contact me, they can write to me at uh, NYU. My email is rz11 at nyu.edu. Thanks for listening to this in-depth episode. Make sure to check out YDS on social media where you'll find articles and info about upcoming events. We'll see you next week.